If you're tired of the snow, don't worry, it's going to be gone this week and it'll all turn to ice. My, I'm looking forward to this week, whenever my driveway gets all, turns into a sheet of ice, it's going to be awesome. So, can't wait for it. Just, it's going to be great. So, let's have a word of prayer and let's jump in this morning. Father, we thank you so much for grace. We thank you that um, when we don't get it right, which seems like all the time, when we don't always feel like we've made the best decisions as parents when we when we mess stuff up that there is your grace that that we can tap into forgive us for not being those who quickly run to it at times and lord i I pray that as we consider this really incredibly hard role of parenting that we would not be intimidated by it but that we would understand that you have called us to it and as you have called us to it, we want to do it in a way that, that brings honor to you, that, that brings pleasure to you, that, that Lord glorifies you and, and benefits our children as well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, what did you learn as you did your homework this week? How many of you evaluated your, your homework? And, and what did you learn as you evaluated your homework? You learn anything about yourself? No one wants to share. No one wants to, like, say that, yeah, I'm a terrible parent. Um, How many of you, as you just thought about it this week, realized that you find yourself negotiating more with your children than you do actually parenting them? there's There's a brave hand in the back. Is it easy to fall into that trap of negotiation? Why is that? Why is it easy to negotiate with kids? Because if you if you're don't negotiate, what does that mean you have to do? You actually have to like, be tough, and you have to enforce, and you have to, you have to, you have to like, require kids to do things, right? So um, I'm going to give you just a little uh, disclaimer this morning. Some of what we talk about here will overlap with this morning's message. I wasn't supposed to preach this morning, but... Um, I am. So a lot of this is going to, some, some of it's going to overlap. So let's look, if you got the handout, if you didn't, they're back there in the back. Um, let's talk about this big idea. And the idea that we're going to deal with this morning is how do you define success for your children? Um, some of us in here are old enough. How do we define success even for our grandchildren, our potential grandchildren? How, how do we define success, okay? And so the big principle that we're going to talk about is this. Knowing God, or you can put above knowing God, treasuring Jesus is far more important than succeeding in life. How many of you agree with that? Treasuring Jesus is far more important than succeeding in life, okay? But let's just stop and consider something here. There are so many things competing for our family's time, for our attention, and for our energy. How many of you as a parent currently have children, how many of you feel that you only just have so much energy to invest in your children? And then you multiply that by the number of children that you have, and and, and how many of you, it just becomes overwhelming to you? Yeah. Think about it with me. What are some of the things that are out there that are competing for our our energy and our attention as a parent? These aren't, these don't have to be bad things. These these can all probably be good things. What are some of the things that are competing for it? Attention. 
Sports, it's a big one. Athletics is a big one, right? Um, I can tell on you, Annie. I, I went to your son's middle school basketball game this week, and, and your family was divided. You weren't there all there, were you? Because you were probably doing something else with another child, weren't you? Okay, how many of you can relate to that? Having multiple kids, being, having to be at two places at the same time, wanting to be there with all your kids and seeing everything, and you can't do it. Okay, what else? What else competes for our time and energy? Your work does. And as your kids get older, their work does. Okay? Their work does. Um, making money gets in the way. How many of you want your kids to get good grades? Can academics get in the way? Absolutely. Absolutely. How many of you have kids who are talented with certain gifts or ability, art, music, things like that? And, and if they have that, you, you might want to invest in that, right? Music lessons are never convenient. Have you figured that out? They're never convenient. They're never at convenient times. Okay, let's, let's mention the one that all of you are afraid to mention. Can activities at church get in the way too? Yeah, yeah, it can. Or it feel like they are, they're like encroaching on family time or your ability to actually parent, okay? Um, some of you homeschool. Are there things with the home, within the homeschool movement that get in the way? The pressure to do this group, the pressure to be a part of that, the pressure to, the, the pressure to well, Mrs. So-and-so over here, she homeschools, she makes all her kids clothes, and she bakes their bread. You guys laugh, but that's real. Moms in here know that. They feel that pressure. They feel that pressure. Okay, so how, think about the way the world measures success for our children. How does the world measure success for our children? Athletic accomplishment, okay? Nobody celebrates the kid who's sitting on the end of the bench on the freshman basketball team. Who gets the pictures taken? Who gets, a, who gets all the, the social media stuff? It's the kid that went for, you know, 12 points, 8 rebounds, and 7 steals, and 4 blocks, right? He's the kid who gets celebrated, right? Okay. How, how else? How else do we measure success? Grades. Grades. Um, every year here at the high school in town, they, they have this huge awards thing at the end of the year, and, and the kids who, sh who shine academically, they stand up, and then when they graduate as seniors, they, they, they casually mention how many dollars and scholarships they get, and, and the average kid who doesn't get that kind of scholarship just sits there like, yeah, I'm nothing, right? How else do we evaluate it? Social status. Yeah. <laughs> you know? How many of you had sent your, 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 your teenage kids, how many of you sent your teenage kids to drive to school in old beaters? And their friends drove BMWs? Mm-hmm. Yeah? And, and, and who are the kids that are liked? Who are the kids that get respect? Okay? There, there's a lot of ways that our world measures success. So let's bring this into focus. And I want you... I want you to consider for yourself and, and resist the urge to give the Sunday school answer here.
what is your desire? In fact, that piece of paper that you took from the back there, under focus, what is your desire for your child or your children? Write it down. What is, what is your desire for your children? Maybe you've never sat down and considered what your desire is. Maybe you just have this assumption that you make in your head. But, but think about what your desire is for your child or your children. Children that you don't have. Children that you're in here right now considering. We're going to have children one day, hopefully, if God blesses. What's my desire? What's my, what's my goal? Okay? What is it that we want? To help you think about that, now, fast forward, take your child to 25 years old. Some of you moms are like, you're breaking my heart right now, Pastor Dan. Take each one of your children to 25 years old. What do you want your children to look like when they're 25? What's your desire? Some of you are like, I just want them out of my house by that time. What do you want for your children at 25? What is it you desire? How many of you want them to have a good job or are married to somebody who has a good job? How many of you want them to be responsible citizens? How many of you want them, you know, to, to be involved in, in other people's lives? How many of you want them to be absolutely sold out in serving Jesus no matter the cost? That, be careful what you wish for there, because if that's your heart's desire, God may take your children and take them far away from you. And sometimes we parent out of fear because we're afraid of what God may do. So I put a quote there. Values are expressed in our expectations for our children. Now, to help you understand what your expectations for your children are, think about it this way. What are the things that upset you the most as a parent? What are the things that your children do or don't do that upset you the most? Do those things kind of reflect your values? Do they? They do. They reflect your values. If you don't get upset with your child's disobedience, you probably don't value obedience then, do you? If you get upset with every little mess that they make, it probably tells me that you value a clean house more than you value your children's welfare. Is that possible to do that? The things that, that bother you the most, or ask yourself this way, what are the things you celebrate the most in your children? What are the things you celebrate the most in your children? If your kid's an athlete and you get really excited about a sports accomplishment, do you get as excited whenever they're just kind and nice and talk to an elderly person on a Sunday morning at church? Do you understand that? In the scope of eternity, what's more important? Does God care if he went for 45, 12, and three steals? What does he care about? And so we have to think as parents, you have to determine and you have to question your own value system because here's what's happening. Your value system is being transferred to your children. 
Your children are taking the things that you value and they're taking their cues from that in one of two ways. One, they're either rejecting it all out because they just can't stand the way that you are about that, or two, they're buying it completely. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Long introduction to get us to Deuteronomy chapter 6. So let's try to fly in from high altitude to get down to ground level by the time we get to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. Who wrote it? Somebody. Did somebody say Moses? If you did, you gave me the right answer. Okay. What's the point of the book of Deuteronomy? We have Genesis, which is the book of beginnings. We have Exodus, which details the children of Israel as they come out of the land of Israel, the giving of the law. Then we have Leviticus, which is all about law and the priesthood, right? And it's about God's holiness. Then we have Numbers, which is, which is kind of a, a hybrid book. It's history. It's also got some other stuff in there as well. And then we get to Deuteronomy. And, and if you've ever read through Deuteronomy, you're like, I think I read all this before in Exodus, right? What's the point of the book of Deuteronomy? To remind, that's good. What else is the point of the book of Deuteronomy? I would submit this to you. If God says something once, is it really important? How many agree with that? If God says something once, it's really important. If he repeats it, is it uber important? What is Deuteronomy? It is a repeating of the law that God gave. This isn't Moses just taking it and writing it out a second time. Because, because understand, if you just go back a little bit, in chapter 3, in the end of chapter 2, we have, we have detail, Moses is detailing how, how the children of Israel, as they're getting close to the land of promise, they now start taking territory from people and they're now living it there, the king of Sion and the king of Og. And then in chapter 4, now Moses starts, because Moses has been told that he's not allowed to go into the land of promise, so Moses is going to, if you will, give his one last big reminder to the people of Israel, right? And so as he does this, he starts giving the law again, okay? And in chapter 5, he goes back through the Ten Commandments, okay? It's, it's basically, much of it's the same wording that we have way back in Exodus chapter 20. He starts to give the Ten Commandments again, and then we come to chapter 6. And after he has given the Ten Commandments, which, which are huge, how many of you kept the Ten Commandments fully this week? No, <laughs> probably not, right? Chapter 6, verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. He says this, okay, I've given you the Ten Commandments. These are the way that we are to conduct ourselves when we go into the land of promise, right? Verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God. What is the point of God giving us commandments according to chapter two or chapter 6, verse 2? What is the point of the law? Why, why is God so detailed with the law? What does he desire for, for those who would, would hear it? That they would what? Fear God. Look up here. As a parent or as a grandparent, if you are not modeling and putting into your children a healthy fear of God, you are not doing them any favors. Your children aren't going to always be with you. And I think sometimes as parents, we fall into the trap, they just need to fear me for the 18 or 20 or 25 years they're with me. 
eventually you have to let go of your children. Do you not? And if they do not have a healthy fear of God, how are they going to know how to live? It's easy though, isn't it, to fall into the trap of making my children fear me? You know how you know if you're really guilty of doing that? Is if when your children or your child doesn't obey you and you just start to get a little more bigger and your voice gets a little louder, what are you conveying to them? Be afraid of me. How many of you are fallible? How many of you make a big mess of parenting? How many of you are terrible at grandparenting? Some of you I need to talk to, I didn't know. The, the number one thing our children need is a healthy fear of God. And so, building now from this, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. Notice, notice he's including grandparents in here. He's including grandparents right in this thing. And he's, he's, he's holding them responsible by keeping all his statutes and, com and his commandments. Oh, oh my goodness, now he's set us up for failure here, hasn't he? I already got you to admit that you guys couldn't even keep the Ten Commandments this week. Why is a fear of the Lord so important for commandment breakers like you and like me? We live in a world of commandment breakers, don't we? Most of them do not fear God, and how do they conduct themselves? Hmm? They just move right on. They don't, they don't have a healthy fear of God, so they just move right on from one breaking to the next breaking, right? And so our children see that. Even if you do everything you can to shelter your children from the world, like hermetically lock them in a bubble and keep them there till they're 20 years old and don't let them out, guess what? As soon as they get out, they're going to see people all around them not fearing God. And the thing is, they've already seen you not fear God at times, right? And so he says this, verse 3, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he's like this, Hear, O Israel, after giving all the law, which you think should probably be the paramount thing, Moses just stops and he just like screams out, Listen up here, Israel. What I'm about to say is really, really important. The Lord our God, or the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, you're hitting us with theology here, Moses. There's two kinds of oneness in this verse, and I think they're both here. There's a singularity, and by that I mean there is only one true God, right? You agree with me? How many of you agree with me there's only one true God? Okay, we say that on Sunday morning, but do we live like that all week? Because if we're not careful, we make our children our gods. We make our job our God. We make a clean house our God. We make the perfect Instagram post our God. Right? There is one God. Not only is there just one God singularly, but God is in three persons and he himself is a unity. He's one. I think both are here. 
in Moses' mind and in God's mind as he says this, okay? And because of that, you shall. Notice he doesn't say it's a good idea then. It might be helpful. (laughs) No, he says you shall. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. What's the link there between four and five? Help me out. Why is the fact that there's one true God and he expresses himself in three persons but as a unity, why is that so important and how does that connect to my love for him? Because here's the thing. If it doesn't connect for you, it's not going to connect for your children. You're not going to model it well for them. Why does it matter for you that there's one God and that you should love him with all your heart? First of all, if he has to command it, what's implied? Our nature is to not what? Our nature is to not love God. What is our nature? Let's be honest. Who are we really good at loving? Every one of us is really great at loving ourselves, and we get mad when people don't love us as much as we love ourselves. A lot of the struggle of parenting is this. You get mad at your children because they don't love you like you love yourself. When they're little, you don't realize it. As they get older, you start to realize, oh man, that's gross. I just really want them to love me as much as I love myself. You shall love the Lord your God. Hmm. How? How are we supposed to love our Lord, the Lord our God? What's he say? Those are the words, but what's he saying there? When he says, your heart, your soul, your mind, what's he saying? Love him with all your being. Love him with your best energy. Love him with your first. If you do nothing else today but love the Lord your God, then you've had a successful day. Do we really believe that? But is that what this verse is saying here? So if you're... If your kid can't understand algebra and he just got cut from the soccer team and, and your, daughter, your daughter absolutely is failing when you're trying to teach her how to cook, but they love the Lord their God with all their heart, are they successful children then? And if you as a parent haven't gotten the laundry done, if, if, if you had to work overtime for the third straight night and you miss bedtime for your kid and all these things, but if you truly love the Lord your God with all your heart, are you doing it right? There's some grace in that, isn't there? There's some grace in that. And, and this, this fights against the performance-based mentality that many of us have just bought into the, in the world system, that parenting is all about performance. And I want to tell you, you need to burn that to the ground. You can always find somebody who's going to outperform you as a parent. Have you figured that out? So here's the thing. Not only are you supposed to do that, verse 6, these words, they need to be on your heart. What is, what is Moses, what is he pleading with the people here to do when he says that they need to be on your heart? Heart in the Bible is also synonymous with what else? It's mind, right? 
And, and it's, it's the center of our emotions. It's where we make our decisions. It's, it's who we are, right? That's why some of us have no personality because we have no heart, right? <laughs> it's who we are, right? It's, it's, and he says, this needs to be on your heart. Your heart needs to feel the full weight of this great God and this love for this God. Why? If your heart feels that, will it change the way that you live? But if your heart doesn't feel that, will you live differently? Yeah. Most of us are good, as I mentioned before, at putting the full weight of, I am worthy to be loved. I am worthy to be obeyed. I am worthy to be followed. I love me. Who wouldn't love me? And does that show in the way that we live? It does. And what Moses is saying to the children of Israel, and what he's, what he's written here for our benefit is this. There's only one being worthy of our love. And if we orient our life to love him that way, it will have great effect in our lives and in the lives of our children and even our grandchildren. So what's the link here between daily living and teaching? What does he say? What's the link here? It's a Sunday morning exercise, right? I take my kids to Sunday school, and maybe even in the car on the way to church, we talk a little bit about Jesus, because after all, it is Sunday, right? When is this supposed to happen? When is this supposed to happen? All the time. So... We usually tend to think of it this way because we're really good Christian parents, right? Every one of us is a really good Christian parent in this room that has children, right? We tend to think of it, the time for this is when I'm disciplining my children. This is when I really need to bring out the God card. Here's the thing. Consider this. If we spent more time talking about our love for God and displaying our love for God and why our children should choose to love God, would we have less opportunities for discipline? Would we? We would. But we save, we save the God talk card for when our children are bad. It's like we have to bring in the heavy. I'm going to bring in God now, okay? You disobeyed me. You disobeyed God. You laugh because you know it's true. So I ask a question there. Do we take advantage of teachable moments? And right next to that, write this. There are far more teachable moments than just discipline. Give me some examples of teachable moments in your lives. How many of you have kids who play sports? Are there teachable moments with that? How many of you had kids come home frustrated with the coach or other players? How many of you as parents get frustrated with the coach or other parents? Jonathan, you're not allowed to answer because, you know. <laughs> Are those teachable moments? Are they? How many of you have kids who excel at something? Are those teachable moments? We usually just think of those as praiseworthy moments, right? But are they teachable moments as well? 
I mean, when was the last time you pointed out to your child, you know the reason that you could ride that horse so well, the reason that you're so good as an artist is because our God is a creative being, our God is an all-powerful being, and he gave you that ability, and he wants you to use it for his glory. There's teachable moments all around us. And we got to stop thinking about teaching like in the way I'm doing it right now. There's a phrase that I learned years ago, and I love this phrase, and I use it. And, and Pastor Andy knows the phrase I'm about to use because I, I talk to him about it all the time. Your best parenting happens when you're shoulder to shoulder with your kids. Do you know what I mean by that? Do you know what I mean by shoulder to shoulder? When you're shoulder to shoulder, are you really looking at one another? Usually when you're shoulder to shoulder, you're doing something, right? Maybe, maybe you're working in the yard. Maybe you're doing chores. Maybe you're, maybe you're doing dishes. Maybe you're just sitting and watching TV or playing a video game together. I know, that's horrible that parents would do that, right? Maybe you're just spending time with that individual. Those, every one of those are golden teachable moments. Why would I say that? Because they're not pressure packed. Be honest with me. How many of you know that you blow it when you discipline your children? That you, 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 you reenact everything and you go back to it and you're like, I wish I'd have said this. I wish I'd have done this. I wish I'd have said this. Or why did I say that? Why did I How many of you get that way? because we put too much pressure on that moment. And we don't take advantage of all of the other time that God gives us with our children. I'm guilty of this as a father of all adult children. I, I, I'll be honest with you, and my children will verify this 100%. Every one of them will verify this. I get bothered sometimes by my adult children still taking my time. You know why? Because I love me. I love me. So I ask a question at the bottom of the sheet. Does, does Deuteronomy 6 imply that there's, or suggest that there's a priority here? Is, is Moses talking about a priority here? Come on, is he? What's the priority? Yeah, it's, it's, it's loving God, and, and this is how serious he is about it. Look at verse 7, teach them when you're talking, and, and it would teach them diligently to your children, when talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, and when the Lord God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all these good things that you did not fill, all these things, he says this at verse 13, when God gives you success, when God pours out his blessing on you, what is the one thing your children and you need to know according to verse 13? I got to fear him. I got to fear him. And do you see the close connection here between loving God and fearing him? Do you see the close connection here? As a parent, there's, that's a cue to us. We don't want our children just to fear us. We want them to lovingly fear us the way that we're supposed to lovingly fear our Heavenly Father. So 
So let's, let's flip over. How many of you do worry about the external influences on your family? I mean, how many of you worry about them greatly? Okay, our, our world is a moral sewer, right? And we get really worried about that. Here's, here's the thing I'm going to suggest to you that you should be more worried about. You should be more worried about your influence on your children as opposed to the world's influence. Now, there are things we can do to, to, to curtail the world's influence on our children, but can we stop it completely? Can you absolutely, when you go on a trip, trip, predict every billboard that your son's going to see, your teenage son who has raging hormones, can you predict every, every sign that he's going to see on a billboard? Can you protect your, 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 your daughter who absolutely loves music and every time there's a beat on, I mean, she is just like, you know, like total gyrations. Can you protect her from every store you go into, from every influence of worldly music that she's going to hear? You can't. You cannot do it. But what you can do is you can be a greater influence of godliness in their life than the world's influence. And if we spend our time parenting, worrying about everything that's on the outside, then we're missing the golden opportunity to be the influence that God has made us to be from the inside of our families. Do you agree with that? I said it last week, I'll say it again. Especially with young children, if you spend all your time parenting them out of fear of what the world is going to do to them, you're going to put that fear into your children in a negative way as opposed to a positive way. You don't want to raise your children just to fear what's outside. You want to raise them to fear a God who is greater than what's on the outside. And those two things are not the same. Those two things are not the same. And I fear that many of us, I fear that myself as a parent, when I had younger children, I was so afraid of everything all around me. There's boogeymans around every corner. And, we, and we, we operate that way that we don't instill in our children. There is a God who is great and he's worthy of our love. And he will protect you. And he will take care of you. And he will be all that you need. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Thoughts or questions at this point? I would suggest to you that, that especially dads in this room, spend some time in Deuteronomy chapter 6 this week. Spend some time in Deuteronomy chapter 6. There's, there's a lot of good fathering principles in there that, that we don't have time to, to even bring out. But let's go to Matthew chapter 13. Have you ever found sometimes when you're reading through the Bible, and, and it's easy, I think Dave Rumke did a good job of this about three weeks ago, blowing up Bible reading plans, and, and I was like, yes, keep going, buddy, keep going, go farther with it. Have you ever found that when you get in a Bible reading plan that you're so pressured to get through it all that you miss the profundity of just one single verse? Matthew 13, 44 is a very profound verse. The kingdom of heaven is like... So when you see the kingdom of heaven, you have to just stop there, and we have to answer, what does that mean? What is Jesus saying? What is Matthew getting at when he's writing this? What, when he says the kingdom of heaven is like, what is he talking about? 
I like a good analogy, and I'm just kind of dumb sometimes. This is, the way, this is the way I taught it to teens, and they're like, that makes sense to me. And I'm like, that's because I'm a teenager at heart. It makes sense to me too. The kingdom of heaven is like being on God's team. This is what it's like to be on God's team. This is, this is the way those who are on God's team acts. This is, this, is, this is the way that we conduct ourselves. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. What? Yeah, which a man found, and he covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. What? God himself is such a treasure that we ought to give up everything and we ought to invest heavily in him. And we ought to pour our lives into pleasing him and fearing him as opposed to where we spend a lot of our wealth and our time and our talent in the world. And notice, as Jesus says it, then in his what? In his what? In his joy. I wrote this there. We're not calling our children to live a life of obligation, hardship, drudgery, or dullness. And often our children, they see the Christian life that way because we present the Christian life honestly as a bunch of do's and don'ts. And how many of you in this room like do's and don'ts? How many of you are like me? If you tell me don't, I'm, I sign up for it. I'm, I'm ready to do. And that's the way we present the Christian life. And that's the way that we, we, we present it to our children. You know, yeah, the world has fun. We don't have fun. We're Christians. You ever feel that way as a parent? We're not allowed to have fun. We're believers. Jesus didn't have fun. We're not having it either. Eat your mashed potatoes and shut up, kid. Right? Notice what Jesus says, who for joy, who for this, this, this satisfaction, this ultimate divine contentment, he sees Christ as the greatest treasure, and he says, you know what, I don't need all this stuff, I found the treasure, and I'm going to hang on to it. How many of you like to thrift? I love to thrift. There is nothing greater than walking into a thrift store and finding some, some you know, $50 sweater that they're going to sell me for $3. I am all over that. And when I find one, then I'm like, there's more. <laughs> right? Uh, the treasure hunt. I mean, it's on then, right? It's like, there's somebody who was my size who gave away really nice clothes, and I'm going to find them here. Right? <laughs> All of the stuff that I buy in a thrift store is going to burn up one day. All of the nice stuff that you do to your house, all of the nice cars that you have, all of the things that you have, it's all day, one day going to all burn up, right? Your children will live for eternity. Let that sink in. Not only will you live for eternity, your children will live for eternity. And so there's something greater than just the things of this life.
all their accomplishments, all the, the neat little you know, pieces of paper that you get. How many of you have boxes that have older kids of all of the stuff they got? Like, we still have our, our kids' Awana Awards. I'm like, would you guys just leave home and take this stuff with you? Take your treasures away, you know? They don't want their treasures, and it's like, we can't get rid of those treasures. You earn those. <laughs> All that stuff's going away, but they're not. Now, make, go with me to Philippians chapter 3. Because in that next line, I make this statement. This is taught and it is caught. Do you know what I mean by that? Do you know what I mean by that? What's it mean to teach? You know what it means to teach, but what does it mean that you put it out there so that your kids catch it? Is there a difference between putting it out there by teaching it and putting it out there so that your kids catch it? Yeah, how often are you putting it out there so your kids catch it? Hopefully more than what you were doing with your teaching, right? If we were to go and pull your children and, and do this and without you being in the room with them and we were to say to your children, how many of you feel like you, spent, you had got more time being lectured by your dad or being taught by your dad? What would your kids say? Taught to lecture. <laughs> yeah. Look at Philippians 3.8. And this is the mindset that you and I need as moms and dads and as grandparents. Indeed, and, and notice at this point, Paul is talking about all of his resume up to this point. He's talking about, about who he was as a man and all the things that he was noted for. And he says this, indeed, I count everything as loss or as rubbish or as total failure because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And if you look at the list leading up to it, there's some pretty notable things in the list. And what does he say? He says, I found the treasure and I sold all this stuff to get the treasure. Isn't that what he's saying here? He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. When I was in ninth grade, my father had built our dream house in the middle of seven acres of woods in northern Ashland County. It was a beautiful house. It's still there. I drove by it a couple years ago. It's still there, still in the middle of these woods on a gravel road that was a short gravel road. Very few people rode down it. I used to take my go-kart out and fly through trails in the woods and get on the street and just raise havoc, and the neighbors would be like, He's, his go-kart's too loud. And when I was in ninth grade, my dad's construction company went through the floor. And he and mom had some problems in their relationship. And I will never forget the day when the moving truck came and all our stuff, which was in this giant house, much of it we left in the house and we only put a little bit in this truck and it went away and we never went back to that house again. And I thought that that was the greatest failure in my life. But yet God used that in a great way to remove me from a place where I didn't need to be. Brought me to Columbus, Ohio, where I met my beautiful wife. Where God put me on a different path. 
And you know what? At the time, I remember thinking, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to a kid. Now, looking back, I'm like, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. Now, I wish that my parents had that mentality. I think my mom did. She, she was willing to lose it all for the sake of her child. But these are the things that we have to put out there for our children to catch. We just can't pound it into their head, expecting them to learn it. We have to model it to them. If we had time, we'd look at Matthew 6. And what we find in Matthew 6 is, is that, that even in Jesus' time, it's much like our time, and I don't have time to unpack it, but, but the world is full of anxious thinking. And the world was full of anxious thinking then. And here's the thing. There's a couple reasons for anxious thinking. The more things you have, probably the more anxious you are about those things. The other thing is, if you only see your life as about yourself, the more anxious you will become. One thing I have found, and I have counseled a lot of people in my office, men, women, and children, and it's true in all of them, that the ones who come to me because they're wrestling with anxious thinking, none of them, I have not found one yet that invested their time in serving others or serving the Lord. They were all about who? Me. And here's the thing, the more that you think about yourself, the crazier you're going to get. Why? And I don't mean this, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but, but, but the crazier you're going to get with your thinking and the more you think about yourself, you know why? Because every one of us is a mess and the more that I focus on my own heart and I don't focus on a God that's greater to love and on loving others because I love Him, the more I'm going to just focus on myself and I am a mess. And the people that wrestle with anxiety are those that don't, treasure Jesus enough to just leave it with him. Do you realize, I just read this this week, the percentages of our children getting diagnosed as adolescents with anxiety has mushroomed in the last four years? Now, we blame it on things like COVID and other things like that. I, I, those, those, are, those are factors. Those are heat that has made that happen. But I blame it on this. I blame it on the fact that they watch their parents who can't handle that stuff. And let that reality sink in, folks. How many of you want kids that will be confident in Christ as they get older? How many of you want that kind of kid? then you better be confident in Christ and you better be modeling that to your children. Well, let me just give you one little point here. Lest you think that I'm telling you that you got to drag your kid to the altar and get them saved. Can you convert your child? Do you have the power to convert your child? Can you make your child love Jesus? Can't do it. Can you, can you die trying though? <laughs> Rather than dying trying, I would rather you die modeling how great it is to love that great God. There's a difference there, isn't there? There's a difference. There's a big difference in that. 
And so what I'm calling for here, I think what the Word of God is calling for is, is that we ourselves first see the surpassing value and greatness of our God and of our Savior Jesus Christ. And if that so grips us, guess what? You can't hide that from your children. They will see it. And some of you are saying, my kids are all adults now. It's too late. It's never too late to love Jesus. It's never too late to love Jesus. You say, I've messed it up with my kids. You want to know what you need to do? Then go tell your kids, I've messed it up with you, and here's where I've gotten it wrong. I haven't loved Jesus like I need to, and I want you to know that Jesus is worth loving, and, and, and I'm going to start making changes, and when you don't see me loving Jesus, son, daughter, call me out on it. Because either we truly believe that he is the treasure we're selling everything for, or we don't. And the only way we know is if we do what? If we actually act on it, if we sell everything and go pursue them, right? So Heavenly Father, make us be moms and dads and grandfathers and grandmothers and parents-to-be that love you with our whole heart because we see you for who you are. You are the great Savior. You are the only hope for our souls. You are the great sustainer. You're the one who has promised to be in this life with us through thick and thin. You've told us you'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. You'll supply all our needs according to your riches in Christ Jesus. May we love you more, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.